Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's just chock full of funk rhythm goodness reviews stories history it's all packed in there get one for a friend makes a great gift whether you're watching to our youtube broadcast or on funkinstuff.net or listening to the audio podcast version on itunes or from other leading providers i thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the program speaking of which if you haven't already done so subscribe subscribe to the funkin stuff channel on youtube that's where Truth and Rhythm lives, and you'll get uh, the show before anybody else if you subscribe. And you'll also uh, be up to date on everything Truth and Rhythm. Don't miss out. Sign up, subscribe, tell a friend, tell family. Featured in this epic episode is the mysterious little scene man listed on dozens of P-Funk albums. I'm talking about longtime George Clooney, Parliament Funkadelic publicist, manager and right-hand man, Archie Ivey. Having developed both his academic skills and activist awareness as a late 1960s UCLA student, Ivey, himself an amateur bass player, became immersed in the soul and funk music scene as a reporter for Los Angeles-based Soul newspaper. After writing about P-Funk, Clinton hired Ivey as a publicist just as the movement was rap, uh, ramping up with a Mothership Connection album and historic tour. He would go on to wear many hats during the next several decades as one of P-Funk's ultimate insiders. Ivy was a mainstay through landmark Parliament and Funkadelic releases like Funk Entelechy versus the Placebo Syndrome, The Motor Booty Affair, One Nation Under a Groove, and Uncle Jam's Army, as well as Clinton's solo career that included Atomic Dog, to the P-Funk All-Stars run of the 1990s and later works, as well as countless funk mob offshoots. In a special four-part Truth and Rhythm series, Ivy takes you into Clinton and his cohorts' inner circle for scores of unforgettable studio stage, behind the scenes, and music business stories. So, here's your Ivy League education on all things P. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, a man who hitched his ride to the original mothership. I'm speaking of the Parliament Funkadelic Mothership of P-Funk's 1970s heyday, and a man who served as a personal assistant, manager, and right-hand man for Dr. Funkenstein himself, George Clinton. I'm speaking of Mr. Archie Ivey. Archie, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, Scott, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you, and uh, yeah. thanks for persevering with our technical challenges. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you got to do it to get over. You know, that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in Tallahassee. Uh, you know, it was about uh, almost 20 years now. Uh, George called me up one day and said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm getting out of Detroit and I, I want to go down to Florida and I'm, I want to open my studio there. And would you come down 
for, you know, 30 days or so and uh, helped me set that up. I said, uh, okay, 30 days, no problem. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a born and raised in Los Angeles. Laker fan, Dodger Blue, all of that. And uh, so I came, and like I said, that was in 2000. I came down here. Golf was great. Fishing was great. The pace of life was great. And uh, it, it just grew on me. So I've been here ever since. A little more humid, but I guess if you can deal with that, you're all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah. Because like Detroit Panthers. Okay. <laughs> Like you, I'm also from Southern Cal, born and raised. So, uh, uh, and now I'm in the Charlotte area. So I've had to adjust to that too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Archie, um, where are you from originally? Uh, you're from Los Angeles originally? Well, uh, technically it's Compton. I live right on the borderline of Compton, Los Angeles. I got used to saying Los Angeles because that was before NWA and everybody put Compton on the map. But um, I, I was right there at uh, Central and El Segundo. I went to Centennial High School, which also graduated Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, and a, a few other sports legends. But uh, yeah, that's that was those were my stomping ground. All right, well, I'm right with you. I got the Lakers hat on, representing, yeah. and uh, I went to Santa Monica High School. Okay, yeah. yeah. We actually had a couple of, of football contests then. I'm sure you're from a different era. I graduated all the way back in 1968. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit later, um, but um, I do remember some of those uh, games when I went. And uh, uh, also, I too went to UCLA, so. Okay, yeah. <laughs> a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, um, you know, when you're growing up, what your interests were, how you sort of gravitated towards media, and uh, tell us about your life uh, before Soul Magazine. Well, interesting. Uh, <laughs> I've never had anybody ask me what my interests were in those days. Um, I was an only child, so I was interested in a lot of things. My main interest probably was baseball, and right on the heels of that was football, I mean, uh, basketball. Uh, all of my friends and buddies liked football, but uh, I, I'd always thought that was a crazy sport. Uh, and um, so I was really into that. But um, in that area was a hotbed for talent. And so I was not even among the, uh, when you had the pickup games, I was nowhere near among the first people who were chosen to play. Uh, I, I started taking music lessons. My mother always wanted me to play piano, so she started me off with piano lessons. I hated practicing, and I went through um, saxophone, then tried guitar, and then tried flute, and finally found the bass, and I started playing bass. Now, um, coming out of that area, in that era, uh, there was a big push to get uh, what they call disadvantaged or underprivileged or people from that era. That was right on the heels of the, the riots of the 60s. And so there was the push to go to college and to do, you know, collegiate type things. So when um, I was a top student, when I um, went to UCLA, I actually majored in engineering. 
but I always loved the DJs on, uh, it was a jazz station. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, 102.3. <laughs> but it was, uh, uh, um, and I always used to love that. I used to go and hang out with them as not an intern, but I just, I used to watch what they do. And when I went to UCLA, found engineering to be extremely boring. And uh, there was all kind of other stuff going on, including uh, sex, drugs, um, <laughs> uh, you name uh, revolutionary things. Uh, we had uh, shootings on campus between the US organization, which I was a part of, and uh, the Panther organization. And um, I, I uh, soon uh, found myself uh, leaning towards media because I wanted to communicate a message, uh, not no particular message, but I thought that would be important uh, uh, area to study. And um, should I just go on and take the whole thing? What what uh, from there? Um, I got hired out as internships uh, to work at uh, what's now Fox. It used to be called Metro Media. And I, um, I worked on shows like um, This Is Your Life and um, Truth of Consequences, um, Bowling for Dollars. But the most one that happened right then, the one I was interested in the most, was this production out of Chicago was going national. And they used our studios there to do the, re re the recording. And it was Soul Train. So I was like the, uh, um, since I was one of the few minority uh, people in the uh, uh, bottom rung there at, 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 at Metro Media, I got assigned to work on Soul Train. And that is what took me uh, towards um, getting me to uh, uh, interact with uh, the musical artists. And um, through those contexts, I found my way to Regina Jones at um, Soul uh, Soul newspaper there, and I uh, I had no idea interest really in being a journalist, but I found out you could go to concerts free and get records free if you wrote reviews. So that's what I started out doing reviews, and then it was uh, a movement. So I skipped a lot of stuff, just cutting to the highlights. But uh, I, I think that gives you a background of what, how I got drawn into the industry. Yeah, thanks for that, Archie. So you had the the sports and the media uh, and the music interests. I'll tell you, it sounds so similar to me. I mean, it's like my big interest. And at UCLA, I took kinesiology, and that kind of weeded me out. Yeah. <laughs> so then I ended up going for radio, television, film, kind of similar. But uh, you, you were you weren't on the air at KLA, also, were you? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> okay. No, that was the, the local station there. I, I was on there for, for two years, two and a half years. So. The UCLA station, yeah. No, I interned at the uh, Cal State North. I transferred to Cal State Northridge, okay. and uh, I did the radio there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Similar paths. Yeah. Um, so you got into Seoul newspaper, and I had Regina Jones on recently when she was just fantastic. Really enjoyed her. That publication was just always a favorite of mine because it was one of the only ones that had those artists so prominently featured, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what years were you with that publication? 
Ooh, that's somewhere in the early 70s. I can't pinpoint it uh, any uh, any earlier than that. I don't think it was 69. I think it wasn't until 70, maybe 71. Uh, somewhere right around in there. And did that get you to meet George Clinton? Is that how that hookup happened? Or? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, there was a couple of parallel tracks. Uh, I had a cousin. Uh, uh, we used to call him Rasputin because he was like a mad monk. He was a crazy guy. But he knew Eddie Hazel. And so I, uh, I was, uh, whenever Eddie would hang out into, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, they both were date. They were dating cousins, and so they the the ladies lived together. And so Eddie got to Reggie Ras got to know Eddie. So I was acquainted to the music and to the greatness of of that music by that association. And then I had been a fan of George's uh, going all the way back to I Want to Testify, and then. Um, I, then, then this song "I Bet You" came out. And that was by a different group, Funkadelic. But it was something about that too, and I didn't know it was the same group at the time. So, um, in and through uh, the assignments, uh, one of them came up to actually, it was to interview the uh, this comedian. He was called an environment medium. His name was James Wesley Jackson, who used to do the opening for uh, Funkadelic shows, and um, I had the assignment to do a, an interview and a feature on him, which took me to this place called Mavericks Flats on Crenshaw Boulevard. And that's where um, George and the group were playing. And then uh, so I, I interviewed uh, James and he invited me to come to the show. And I had no idea what that was. I don't even think I left with an idea. Of, it was just something I had never experienced before. And so from that, every time I got an opportunity from an editor or something, they said, uh, I need 500 words. Uh, one of my articles dropped out or didn't come through. Can you give me 500 words? And I said, sure. And I'd write things about George and P-Funk. And uh, I didn't know George was keeping track of that. So by this time, uh, I had... Um, Gone to begin to hung out at the studio because they were recording. I think it was uh, it was up for the Downstroke album and um, must have been up for the Downstroke and it was uh, the, the, the standing on the verge. So I think those were the, the albums being recorded then. So I uh, I went down to the studio and um, George asked me one day. He said. Uh, <laughs> all right that's it yeah he asked me he said man is it i'll tell you a story about that one just a quick aside uh, I, I also knew sly and was following him around and doing stuff like that and uh george's I, I told george i said you know stand on the verge would have been a hit but it fluctuates a little bit in the rhythm like the nerve of me i'm a kid i'm telling that but i was telling you from the standpoint of said you know a club dancer always hanging out at the dance clubs and saying that's a problem when you're dancing. The beat has to be consistent. So I turned him on to this device. It was called the Rhythm King, which George called the man in the box. And the first time he used it was on that um, that album. It was called uh, Presence of a Brain track. 
So that's just an aside. So anyhow, we were there one night he, he, and we're talking and he says, I, I want to share something with you. And he started telling me this vision that he had about um, this funk opera and about how he wanted to do something that would be uh, different, that, that uh, not just black artists, but it would even be different than the white artists would be doing. And he gave me the whole concept of uh, the mothership connection. And at the end of that, he said, you know, uh, in order for it to work, though, I'm going to have to define it before uh, the press defines it. I want to make sure that we put our own definition on it. So he said, um, I want you to come aboard and be my publicist. And uh, he's, <laughs> so I told him, I said, OK, uh, let me think about that. And about 10 seconds later, I said, yes. <laughs> and, and, and that's how we started. I started working right on uh, the Chocolate City. And even though he was releasing Chocolate City, a concept album, we were beginning to forge the concepts. Yes, that's right. We were beginning to forge the concept of uh, Mothership Connection. So and it, was, was that face-to-face, -face, Archie? That I'm sorry? Was that face-to-face -face that he asked you or over the phone? Oh, no, it's face-to-face, -face, yeah. We, we were right in the studio. And <laughs> yeah, both of us were, were still lucid, uh, uh, able to, to see each other. So it was face-to-face, -face, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I say that because uh, it was, uh, there were, um, George, I think, had a phrase at one point. He called them trendy chemical substances. <laughs> <laughs> that would impair your judgment or at least your reaction time sometimes. So uh, there was plenty of that going on in the world of P-Funk and, and the industry in general. I mean, we're not alone. Uh, and, and that was one thing that um, I was, at the same time, I had just come back from uh, on assignment for Soul, come back from this place called Caribou Ranch in uh, Colorado. And it was, um, I think it was, that's the way of the world. I worked for their fire, invited me up there to do this piece on them. And I was up there and um, I was up there and it was, it was, it was a beautiful, serene place. And uh, I was staying in the big house with Maurice and uh, there were little cabins where all the other guys were staying. And, you know, everybody sat down, they had meals together and it was just, you know, real, nice and friendly earth wind and fire style and so i would have to um, go out on on a horseback riding uh, with some of the other co-workers there and we would ride our horses way out in the wilderness ride the horses out there in order to smoke a joint so it's not that to uh um <laughs> uh, how would you say that not to uh, be against the wishes of the client there so um and now <laughs> yeah, now it's legal there, right. But I was taking pictures, all of the pictures there, and I had run out of film. And so I went to the kitchen, the main house one day, uh, 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 where they served and cooked all the meals, and I said, when are you guys going back into town? I need to get some more film. And they said, oh, you're lucky. We're going in today. We have to get some more hamburger meat. I said, hamburger meat? Like, who eats meat? And they said, all the guys uh, every night after uh, uh, you know around midnight they call up and order hamburgers right 
So I was thinking, here they are, they have this public facade of being vegetarians. I didn't, uh, so that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And then a couple nights later was the, the premiere where they were going to do the uh, release. Uh, uh, for the, they brought all their families up from Denver and stuff, and all the ladies were there. I mean, we were sitting in the studio in, in the uh, little side room where the speakers were pumping in the music, and Maurice was in the control room. And they were playing like sing a song and different tracks from that album. And uh, one of the wives gets up and she says, okay, so who's got the drugs? And all the guys started going, Shh, they got all uncomfortable and stuff because, you know, the writer was in the room, right? I never told that story, but soon thereafter, I was offered the job to do be the publicist for Earth, Wind & Fire. And uh, even when I wrote that story, I didn't write about those things because, you know, it was it was no big deal. I just thought this was cool. I wasn't trying to do any exposés or anything or change anybody's reality. But I thought it was, wow, here these guys are being all mystical and everything else. And they're contrary. Their reality is contrary to what they're uh, representing. Meanwhile, as George, on the other hand, I would show up at the studio to him and he'd look at me and say, what you got? <laughs> so, so uh, um, when I had the opportunity to work for George versus Earth, Wind & Fire, I remember explaining that to my mother, and she gave me this look. Now, I'm only child, so she always let me follow the path that I wanted to, but she thought it was the greatest offer in the world was to work with Earth, Wind & Fire, and I thought the greatest offer in the world was to work with George and P-Funk. And um, she eventually came around because when we landed the mothership at the L.A. Coliseum, uh, she had the special uh, place in the press box and she sat next to Lou Gossett. So she figured maybe this thing, maybe we are, maybe we are doing something OK. So. <laughs> right. well, that was a win win, though. You couldn't go wrong, really, with either of those. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, look, I came out through the 60s and it was black power, revolution, truth. Uh, uh, it was about speak truth to power and stuff. And I was not going to um, be part of telling lies. I, I, I just didn't want to be that person. Uh, and um, probably a little idealistic. It was, you know, I, I did a lot of things where I chose my ideals over money. And I'd probably have a different life now had I taken that other road, but I don't think I can be any happier. Well, that's the most important thing, be true to yourself. That's yeah. at the core of, of funk and P-funk especially, I think. Yes, exactly. If um, you fake the funk, your nose will grow. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, in uh, Maurice White's book, I don't know if you read that, he does talk about them, you know, doing some stuff. Finally. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's 1975. You're like in your mid-20s and suddenly you're thrust into the middle of the the incredible about to explode funk empire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was, uh, you say, thrust in. Uh, that's, when I came on as publicist, I actually worked. I had an office in the space of, uh, it was called Ron Strassner Associates, Charlie Bassolini and Ron Strassner. And 
Uh, George had known both of them from Detroit. His Detroit days, they were promotion men and, and, and management back in those days. And uh, George really liked Charlie. Uh, uh, and we we remain friends today. I think Ron has passed on, but uh, uh, Charlie's really, really good guy. Uh, but uh, they were doing some things that were a little suspect uh, in terms of how they were taking advantage, as managers do, where they were using the cash flow of what George was bringing in to enrich their lives, even though it wasn't like they were stealing, but they were getting things based upon uh, their association and connection with the cash flow that they had coming in. Uh, by holding deposits, they had great relationships with the banks. So they were able to, you know, get, it, it would just show up in their accounts. They were able to get mortgages on fancy Hollywood Hills places. Uh, everybody around there drove fancy cars, except for me and Tom Vickers. Uh, Tom Vickers eventually came in when um, we when when it started going really pop. Uh, I was telling Georgia, we need somebody with more contacts and stuff. And Tom had done uh, a bunch of stories for us for Rolling Stones and various publications. And we brought him in to handle that when the touring happened, because right before, uh, well, right during the first tour mothership, George left Ron Strassner Associates. It was about four months before he made the move. He told me to start paying attention to everything going on in the office. And I thought he just wanted me to be like a spy or something. I had no idea he in the chair of being his manager or his representative. So yeah, uh, at about 25 or 26, I was uh, heading the operation of the biggest, one of the biggest acts in the industry, not just in black, but definitely one of the key top black acts. And we were in the top end, top 10 grossing acts in, in all things, because we were playing uh, arenas and stadiums with the, with the Mothership Tour. And I had uh, Tom Vickers was on the show, and I was really curious how your roles kind of differed during that time. Yeah. And what was, is that a question? I'm sorry. Oh, I, I said I, I was I was had been curious how your roles differed during that time because it seemed like there was some probably a little overlap between you and Tom, right? Well, there was in, in terms of uh, uh, for a minute, uh, it, 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 there was no competition while I had my connections. Uh, we're in black radio uh, and, and the black press. That was still a limited outlet, and we would we were um, making noise to the world in general. And Tom was essential in getting the world in general out there. Funny thing though, uh, those whole mothership tours. This was at a time when um, the industry was very segregated in terms of concerts. You didn't have white people; just didn't attend. Uh, uh, even though they were in, we were in the same buildings. We were playing like the uh, the Forum in Los Angeles, or the Coliseum in Oakland, or the Coliseum in Los Angeles. We were playing the big venues, but it was still predominantly all black audiences. Very few white people would venture into that. So and it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There was there was there were there were uh, more than enough. But uh, very few of them that can claim, because basically the mothership being what Rolling Stone at what point said, if there was one moment to define rock and roll to someone who didn't know anything about it, that moment would be the landing of the mothership. 
and uh, I forget which article or what writer wrote that, but I thought that was a great quote because, yeah, I thought that was a great quote because it was truly what it is. When Glenn Goins would bring the, the ship in, there was nothing that compared to that. Glenn was, uh, it was amazing, and the emotion and the energy. And when when the little ship would come from the back of the auditorium and people looked up, they would have been okay with if that had been anything. And the people that were down on the on the uh, floor level and stuff, and you could see how they would he, they would see it, and they would start looking back, and they would see this, and they would start screaming, and it was so loud you didn't think it could go any louder. But then when the lights would would light up and the smoke would come down from under the hat or behind the flag and one to it. And that real mothership came down. It was an unbelievable moment. The place just rocked. You would, you would feel the vibration. People were in tears. People were in tears of joy. People were, were going crazy. People were slapping each other five. I mean, it was an incredible experience. Anybody who's seen it will tell you the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you talk about goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So you were in the studio, though, for some or all of the recording of Mothership Connection? Oh, yeah, most of those were Mothership Connection. Most of the stuff, uh, uh, especially not somebody, uh, I was, uh, I didn't go there all the time, but sometimes. Uh, but I was definitely around for all of the mixing sessions. I kind of like not wanted to hear uh, the stuff until it was how it was going to be presented because I found that uh, you started liking it the way you first hear it. And when George and that other stuff to mix one part out and I thought, well, man, that was my favorite part. But, you know, like it's kind of like his thing. <laughs> I'm not going to tell him, hey, George, you blew that mix. But um, I think he appreciated the things that I had to say, or at least I appreciated things I had to say. I remember when he was doing more bounce for the ounce and with Roger, a Troutman and, and Zap, and Roger did not want that song at all. It was actually an intro piece. It was like a four bar intro that I think was to uh, 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 another song. I can't remember the name of it. And George took it and he looped it so that it just became this endless, like, thing, a, a dirge almost. And it was just, you know, more mouse to jink, 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 jink to the house. And Roger thought it was boring. And some of the artists that were doing the album covers, they thought it was boring. And everybody had a critique. And I always dealt with stuff from how I was. I was a dancer. I started hanging out in clubs at about 18. And I would always go to the club. So I was able to actually identify hit records like um, when I would hear it, just by knowing how they worked on the dance floor. And so I knew that that song would work on the dance floor. And I told him that because he was he, he, he went ahead with it and made it and it became the hit that it that it was. Um, another similar thing was and I don't I can't take credit for it. I'm sure you can figure that out. August 1st, uh, there was no uh, front-running drums. They were just, uh, that, that part of that track is reversed, right? And it, which is, gives it that incredible compressing sound. It was like, okay, I don't know how this takes out on your Skype sound. And I told him, man, put a backbeat on that and it's a smash. Okay. 
So I'll take bows on all those things. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Again, have that input, you yeah. know, man, on all time classics. All time. Yeah. 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 Oh, I got more. I can tell you more. Uh, 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 and these are things that I, I don't like uh, pounding my own horn. But I also was responsible for one of the first 12-inch productions. When 12 inches came about, uh, there was uh, we needed to have extended versions for the clubs, right? And George would let me do two things uh, because he, I was learning from him in the studio about uh, doing the mixes. But he would let me do the edits. He would let me do the edits for the radio versions. Uh, he felt it be tedious. And also something, you know, he couldn't snip out parts because he loved the whole thing, right? But in those days, you had to get it to down to near three minutes. So if it, it was really a good song, you could get it to 3.15, maybe 3.25. 3.30, you were really stretching it. So you had to do edits on songs. But then the reverse thing happened. In the clubs, they wanted longer mixes. And I remember this guy, his name was Roger Dollarhide. I met him through Sly. He was actually Sly's engineer. And I used to go in the studio with him, Paramount Studios there off, off Santa Monica. And we would do these extended versions. And when we first did uh, One Nation Under Groove, the, the whole song was like four minutes. And we had to stretch it to get to, I think it was eight or ten verse, ten minutes on the extended version. And um, nowadays, the remix is a, is a whole industry in that. But we did it with that. We did it with Knee Deep. We did Flashlight. We gave these extended versions of these songs. Yes. So, uh, and, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Okay, that was like playing producer. Now, uh, eventually, that used, that became a uh, paying gig in the industry, where people actually got paid to do. Uh, extended remixes but at this time we were just um, uh, addressing the, the needs of the community and, and of the of the industry of the, of the people who were buying the marketplace it was the, the needs of the marketplace and uh, that was one of some of the things that we used to do that were uh, so much fun was because we were in tune with the marketplace uh, we, uh, you know, one of the things that slowed the industry down and messed it up when they found out that marketing was a thing, they wanted you to turn your uh, music in 14, 16 weeks before it would be released so the record companies could develop a marketing plan. And uh, that was contrary to the energy of the recording uh, in 14 weeks. Everything people are dancing to, uh, the dance, the actual dances they're doing could change. And here, what you what you recorded was hot right then. Well, it's not so hot then. And not only that, when the the people who are promoting the records had so much time to get acquainted to it or with it, they lost the excitement. But when you gave them a record on, uh, as a matter of fact, we used to put the records out <laughs> had radio guys waiting for it before they even got into the hands of the record company used to piss them off big time but it was how we would ensure uh, that energy and excitement in the in the marketplace we had it down to a, to a, to a science we would release 
singles right around the time of there was this guy named Jack the Rapper who was a DJ and he had this uh, industry tip sheet published out of Atlanta. He just had this convention in August and we would always coincide releases to debut there when all the DJs were in one place. And I remember when more the more bounce came out, uh, one of our promotion guys, Ramon Spruill, his gig was all day. He just stayed in the elevator to the hotel and played that on his boom box. And so everybody that came in to check into the room heard this song. So by the time they were uh, uh, ready to uh, uh, leave, they were excited about this upcoming song. song. I remember one, one while we were doing that Stevie Wonder gets on the, the elevator and you know his head would always go around like that. And that song was playing and Stevie was just bouncing to it and roll it. And he just said, like, into the air, to, I guess, to whoever he's talking to, he said, that there's George Clinton, isn't it? That's there to George Clinton. <laughs> and we said, yeah, this is a new group, Zach. He said, yeah, George going to be funky. And that was, uh, so we would have our releases around that time in August so that by mid-October, they would top the charts. And then that would drive the November purchases in the marketplace back when there were record stores so they could have them to display through the holiday season. And it was it would work if you a lot of people don't know it. They realize and see when George's singles, big singles were hits. That's when it was as we timed it accordingly. Huh. Wow. But that uh, One Nation under Groove, I mean, that was one of my all time favorite songs and the 12 yeah. inch of that is one of my all-time favorite 12 inches it's i mean it actually these are 12 inches that even make great songs greater like aqua boogie is another incredible 12 inch uh, single yeah 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 um, but one nation roger rod like i said we were in the studio it was a four minute loop so he had to figure out how to stretch it so he had me sit about on the other side of the room with a pencil which I had to hold in place and ran the tape around this pencil and back around through the machine so he could re-record it onto, to get it to be eight to 10 minutes long. So, so we, we made a loop out of it and it kept, it kept circul circulating like that. It was a lot of fun. He was a creative guy. He's passed on now. That's high tech right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very yeah. high tech. <laughs> Archie, I want to ask you about some of the P-Funk characters that we all know and love. You know, what, um, what was it like being so close to George? And what, what in your mind makes George so special and maybe a genius? Well, I think he is a genius, um, um, especially in at what he does, you know. And, and it's his natural instincts, okay? Um one time he would he would tell me when he would do want to do something and i would ask him i said george did you figure that out or is this your gut feeling he said oh man no i figured it out i said he said why do you ask i said because i'll follow your gut feeling anywhere but people don't give you honest information and people will say things to you try and leave out everything one thing that i had in my relationship with him that he appreciated was that I always told him dry exactly the facts. And then if he asked me, I said, well, in my opinion, this is what I would do. You know, it's your thing. And I follow whatever his lead is. And I think he appreciated that. 
But what made him special is he took input from all kinds of people and everybody's input was valid. And uh, when it comes to the characters and those kind of things, first of all, he's extremely intelligent and he read a lot. A lot of people don't know that he was always reading. And uh, so it was, he would read uh, controversial books, conspiratorial books, or just books on like, um, he was on in um, the airport at Dallas, Fort Worth, and they had this tram that circulates the whole airport. And he got on the, uh, the tram and there was a book, I forget the name of it, but it was about cloning. And he read that book and that's how he came up with the concept of the clones of Dr. Frankenstein. And so we were always, he was into science as well as science fiction, yeah. And that's how those things uh, became elements. He wasn't afraid to mix, and now they have a phrase for it. They call it Af Afrofuturism and stuff. And he was just doing things that he thought would be um, uh, uh, interesting juxtapositions, the same way they do in movies. Uh, one of the, the classic conditions for a movie is called a fish out of water. Uh, a scenario, uh, uh, and, and you take somebody that and put them in circumstances that they're not used to. So, and you get uh, uh, what was uh, I, I can't think of the Eddie Murphy movie where they took he was a a, a, a rich guy or something. They put trading him in, places, uh, trading places, right? Yeah, yeah, trading places. Yeah, that's a fish out of water story, and that's what uh, you know the, when they were having all the science fiction and stuff like that. The basis of the funk opera. Well, what if aliens came down and they weren't here to eat us, they weren't here to steal our planet, and they just wanted us to party? <laughs> okay, that was an interesting thing. And so I remember Neil Bogart asked him, um, what do you mean? What, what do you mean by that? And he said, okay, you know how you see pimps with Cadillacs? Think of something that outrageous, but with a spaceship. And of course, Neil took it a little too literally. We had to go back and forth because he wanted, Neil Bogart, president of Casablanca Records. And he wanted, he said, George, I think the name of that album should be Landing in the Ghetto. <laughs> and uh, George and I looked at each other and we said like, no, Neil, you, you don't get it. And we explained to him the whole thing. And what made him brilliant uh, was that even if he didn't get it, he listened. And then he would immediately leave our conversation, get on the phone with his promotion men and tell them what they had to do to promote it. And he was, I mean, he was a master promotion guy, uh, Kiss, Donna Summers, uh, uh, Village People. A lot of people don't know, but he was behind the whole bubblegum music movement. Okay, he was a promotion man then. And uh, it, it was, we used to come into conflict over what we wanted to do and how he should spend the marketing money and stuff. We used the management versus record labels. But, um, you know, sometimes they say you don't miss something until it's gone. Uh, uh, and and uh, when we were at other places, not under his leadership and his ability, ability to let us run with it, uh, we really could appreciate what he did much, much more than he was, he was, he was visionary. And he, he actually, heard the concept of the mothership, and then did the necessary things to um, to make sure that it happened. He was willing to explain. Now, he was betting on monies that George was making, so it wasn't like <laughs> not much of a stretch, but uh, to, we had to go to this place called uh, First Los Angeles Bank, 
And this was one of the first places where they started investing in projects. First banks back in those days that started investing in projects. And they decided to invest based upon the royalties and blah, blah, blah. However, they structured that. That actually was enabled us to go to a Broadway uh, a designer, Jules Verne, and um, have him design the stage. We went to Larry Legaspi, who was a costume designer. He did all the Bell's outfits, and, and he designed, he gave the look to it. And then we just implemented that. And um, so, uh, and George always had this notion when you talk about getting back to his brilliance. He used to tell me, artists get old, but cartoons and characters don't. They live forever. So he never wanted to be like upfront as the artist. He always wanted these personas uh, uh, that could carry things on. Uh, that's why we have so many of those um, creative uh, 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 those characters and, and we, it really started to click when we got to funk Teleki versus the placebo syndrome and uh, um, so yeah these are a lot of fun days probably the the guy that personifies i would say the whole thing of being an ageless character the most to me is like bootsy i mean even today he looks like he's not aging at all bootsy is a lot of fun um, I remember when uh, Bootsy, I, I don't know how he got his name, he was always called Bootsy when I first met him, but uh, the persona, that character, I remember after we did the first album, Stretching Out in a Rubber Band, which was, uh, that that's what made me really stop playing the bass. Because, <laughs> like, Bootsy was like, he's the most rhythmic, I, I mean, it's, it's I mean, he was he was just phenomenal, and, and the, the bass players George had around him, like Skeet and even Boogie and all of those guys. It was like I, I judge myself by them as opposed to some of the other people, like a Verdine White or some other people who I could play everything they were playing, and so I never gave them credit, uh, undeservedly. So I was too highly critical. I didn't realize that at that time that. Uh, the guys in Funkadelic were in rare air when it comes to their musicianship. Uh, uh, Bernie Worrell, uh, uh, the ultimate genius and the mastermind. I mean, there's, there's never, I, I can't say anybody on the planet quite like him, the way he can blend all sorts of music just as that's, he hears things like that or he heard things passed on, God bless him. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe Stevie Wonder, but it's, 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 it's the same but different. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, and, and then you had Eddie Hazel and Mike Hampton and like I said, Bootsy and Skeet. I mean, these are just phenomenal musicians and, and they, they were allowed to make music, not just, uh, you know, a lot of people, they write songs first and they come up and they hum something and then have the musicians do the, the chord patterns to what they're humming. Not George. George let people come in and record. And then he wrote the songs to fit whatever they were doing. So it was a, it was a freshness to it and a fresh feel. So I, I think that aided in his genius, too. He had the ability to uh, take whatever level of, of musicianship you were at and get the maximum at that. He wouldn't try to take you past, past what you were good at, but he could get the best of what you could do and find a way to blend it into everything. And 
that's why his recordings are as special as they are. There's a timelessness to them because there's actual creativity. It's not the work of, of a singular mind. You um, mentioned so many incredible musicians. And then Fred yeah. Amasio, too, on the horns. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Fred when, when George brought him in to, to, the, uh, to the studio to do Mothership Connection, right? And Fred comes in there and he's listening to the track and stuff. And he, he looks at George and he says, so what you want me to do? And George pauses and he looks at him and he says, give me something bad. <laughs> okay. And when Fred, Fred laughed and he went into the studio and George says, uh, I don't play no horn. What I look like trying to tell Fred or Macy or what to play. I just want them to play what they can play and make it bad, make it funky. And, uh, and Fred did all the arrangements on that. And, you know, um, we were on the bus and Maceo once made a comment. Maceo is a great human being. I mean, it's, I lived in a, a special life being around these guys. But yeah, Maceo, uh, he said, uh, you know why musicians like George? Because he lets us play. And he said, we know where a song's going to start, and we know how it's going to end, but he lets us do what we can do in the middle. And I thought that was, uh, and, and, and if you understand, that, that's a lot like what jazz is. It's a lot of free-flowing improv around a basic structure. Uh, you know, where, uh, uh, like a weather report or return to forever. Uh, they would go off and they would have these incredible lines. Sometimes a line would be like 18 bars or 16 bars long for just a line, right? And then they would space out and I guess somebody would give a nod. I don't know how they would know when to all come back together. They'd be in all these different worlds. Then all of a sudden they'd come back together in this unified line. And that's basically what uh, George does uh, and what he allowed the, the, the guys in the band to do. So people could come to shows and they see the show and they say it would be a great experience. And then they go the next night and see the show Say, man, that was that was that was great too. But once you did three shows in a row, you understand these guys don't do the same show each night. It's the same song, but it's a different show every night. And that that is another uh, thing. So when you say, what is his genius? At the end of the day, he has the ability to recognize the genius in others, whatever level of that genius may be. Um, he, he recognized my ability to do what I was able to provide for him at a time when it was an industry no-no to have a 26-year-old uh, kid out of Compton uh, managing a major artist. But he stood behind me and forced the industry people to, uh, to deal with it. And, of course, they, wanted, uh, they made it difficult for him. And <laughs> I remember at one point it had gotten to me where... Um, I said, George, uh, I came to him and I said, man, I don't think I'm really doing you a service. Um, if they're all opposed to what I'm doing and stuff, and I, I think I'm going to have to step down because it's, I, I don't want to mess it up. And he looked at me and laughed. And he said, man, uh, you should think a lot of yourself. <laughs> he said, if this ain't messed up in spite of me, what makes you think you can mess it up? 
And that just like was a, a weight lifted off me. And I had the ability to, to understand. He had this philosophy he used to say all the time. Or he still says all the time. He says, think of the worst thing in the world that could happen to you and deal with that. And it, and it happens. It's still going to be okay by Thursday. And that was his attitude. And no matter what was going on, it's going to be okay by Thursday. And things have a way of working their way out. It's not always how we envision. As a matter of fact, we restrict things happening uh, in, in a, a, a natural way of evolving by us wanting to force our sight onto it, what our wanting to shape it in the way in which we see it. That, that's restricting. And uh, so he allows things like that to happen. And so his genius is recognizing genius and um, and getting out the way of it. <laughs> you know, I, asked him what, uh, I, I, want, I, I, I want to interject one thing, Archie, and see what you think about it. To me, I think another one of his amazing uh, qualities and talents was the vocal arrangements. You know, I mean, the vocals to P-Funk are like none other. And you know, the layers, and just, I mean, you always know his P-Funk vocals. And yeah. when George isn't part of it, it's not the same. So yeah. clearly, yeah. he has a big influence yeah. on the vocals. Yeah, he has a very unique uh, 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 identity in his vocals. Like you said, you can tell when George is, has done, the, put his, his little thing on something. It might be somebody else's recording. Uh, the way uh, the key thing you said there was layers. He would stack a voice after voice after voice after voice on it, and then he would get it just right, and then he would call it doubling. And then if it didn't quite have the oof that he wanted, he would triple it. And this would not be just making a digital copy and doing the same, repeating the same thing. No, he would have people sing it again. And just the human nature of uh, 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 in just natural intonations gave it more of a big choir quality than just a, a, a even a small group. And and it, it, it's been that way since um, for a long time. <laughs> for a long time, I I, I wanted to stay uh, uh, tear the roof off for a second, but it was actually he began working with that in his earlier funkadelic albums. That that particular technique and sound, as as tracks became more more available, you know, at one point you only had sixteen tracks to work with, so that was a little limiting. Uh, once you mic'd all the drums and and all the uh, um, uh, 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 the guitar and piano and all the, the the instrument instrumental elements, you didn't have very many tracks left to stack vocals on. But once it expanded to twenty four tracks. You still use the same amount of tracks for music, but now you had this new world of what you could do vocally. And that's a keen ear to pick that up. 